Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this week's one of the big ones for me as I step back through the magic door into the strange yet familiar land of Midworld, home of gun-toting knights, dimension-hopping magicians, the nexus of all realities, and monstrous crustaceans who'd like to talk to you before chopping you up into bits. This week, I return to the world of Roland Dischain, the last gunslinger in a world that's moved on as he awakens on the beach where we'd last left him in the concluding pages of the first volume of The Dark Tower, only to find that while he might have bested the man in black, the struggles he now has to face are unpredictable and even more deadly. The Dark Tower series is the sigil for the uber Stephen King fan, but it's not among his most famous or widely read entries. Personally, people I've known who've been major King fans have never been able to enjoy The Dark Tower because I've heard many of them say, I can't get into it. I attribute that to the first entry in the series, The Gunslinger. As you no doubt know by now, The Gunslinger was begun by a 19-year-old Stephen King, and by 1987 um, in his career, which includes uh, possessed and obsessive cars, friendly werewolves, and space turtles, The Gunslinger is still by far his weirdest. Between the strange dialogue, the um, anachronisms galore, the style of prose, and the bizarre nature to the central story, which still doesn't really add up to, to much, you, you buy it, but reach the tower to save the universe, um, it's enough to turn away those who'd come for another entry from the Master of Horror. Plus, because it was begun by an earlier king, the Gunslinger doesn't read like a king book. It feels very academic like a college student who swings a newly discovered pen like a fresh sword, marveling at the heft in his hand, the way the metal shines in the light, and the sound it makes as it cuts through the air. And as a result, we get slices of heavy symbolism, illusion, and more pronounced themes than what's considered normal at that point in his career. That isn't to say that the book isn't bad. Right? I mean, I dedicated two episodes to the book. It's just that for someone expecting another Carrie, The Shining, Cujo, Firestarter, you know, the list goes on, The Gunslinger, you know, can be very off-putting. So for those fans that, quote-unquote, can't get into it, um, I tell these fans to just get through it, just so you can give the drawing of the three a shot. Because the drawing of the three is the first Dark Tower book that reads like a Stephen King novel. Here, King is able to expand the world of Roland without further alienating his audience. It never goes too far into fantasy territory, the way portions of the Gunslinger had, and wisely, he grounds the strange landscape of an alien beach with uh, carnivorous singing lobsters uh, with fully realized depictions of New York City. So, The Gunslinger was the novel of a younger writer at the beginning of his quest. The Drawing of the Three is the novel of an author at the height of his abilities. Compared to The Gunslinger, there's so much more life to the drawing of the three. And that's not necessarily a knock on The Gunslinger, because, after all, between the never-ending Mohane Desert, the Golgotha of Bones, the two deaths of an innocent child, the novel is supposed to belong um, to, to, to deathly themes. But it doesn't always make for the most electric reading experience. The drawing of the three, however, is incredibly tense. It's full of mystery and danger, it's fun, and it's imbued with a humor that we haven't seen yet in the series. I mean, alone, the comedic pairing of drug addict Eddie Dean and battle-hardened Roland makes for one of the best relationships that King has ever put on paper. And there's so much pleasure to be had trying to figure out how the New York scenes tie into the larger narrative. I mean, toss in a serial killer, heroin withdrawals, the mafia, split personalities, the ever-present ghost of the man in black who hangs over this book like a shadow on a sunny day, vicious lobster creatures, the deadly infection of our main character, magic doorways, and crazy gunfights, the novel never stops being fun. The tension builds and builds despite you thinking that you can't take anymore. In the opening pages, the gunslinger, who needs his fingers to shoot his trademarked guns, has said fingers clawed off of his hands, and that's how it begins. With this small but significant action, King reveals that you can never truly be safe in this world, and the things that you take for granted are the things that might wind up killing you. 
And the novel itself breathes life into this dying world, like I said before. With Eddie and Detta, Odetta, and eventually Susanna, the characters introduced here leap off of the page and hint at a redemptive future for our main character, who in the previous novel sacrificed a child to get closer to the Dark Tower. Whether the redemption itself is a tease or not will ultimately be revealed in the final pages of Book 7, but at this point in publication, it felt good to read a victory of this character and his newly formed family. What we once took as a story of the last gunslinger has now become the story of the last gunslingers, and by the time the book ends, we can't wait to see what Stephen King has in store. Actually, when you look at the series as a whole, the, the gunslinger reads more like an extended prologue to the story with the drawing of the three feeling like the first real entry in the collection, with the relationships formed that will propel through the remaining novels right through the end. Now, before I go any further, uh, as always, I will read the Wikipedia entry, so I'll have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. The book begins less than seven hours after the end of The Dark Tower. The Gunslinger. After the man in black has described the gunslinger's fate using tarot cards, Roland wakes up on a beach where he is suddenly attacked by strange lobster-like creatures, which he dubs lobstrosities. He kills the creature, but not before losing the index and middle finger of his right hand and most of his right big toe. His untreated wounds soon become infected. Feverish and losing strength, Roland continues to trek north along the beach where he eventually encounters three doors. Each door opens into New York City at different periods in time, 1987, 1964, and 1977, respectively. And as Roland passes through these doors, he brings back the companions who will join him on his quest to the Dark Tower. The first door, labeled The Prisoner, brings Eddie Dean, a young heroin addict who is in the process of smuggling cocaine into New York for the drug lord Enrico Balazar. Roland brings Eddie back through the door so he can hide the cocaine and get through a customs inspection, but the agents become suspicious and subject him to a lengthy interrogation and surveillance. Balazar learns of these events and kidnaps Eddie, uh, Eddie's heavily addicted older brother Henry, in order to force Eddie to deliver the drugs. After Henry dies from an accidental heroin overdose given by Balazar's men, Roland and Eddie go through the door and kill them. Eddie decides to throw his lot in with Roland, although with deep misgivings that he occasionally gives vent to in the form of angry outbursts. The second door, labeled the Lady of Shadows, reveals Odetta Holmes, a black woman who is an active in the civil rights movement. She's wealthy and missing her legs below the knees after being pushed in front of a subway train. Odetta is completely unaware that she has an alternate personality, a violent, predatory woman named Detta Walker. Roland and Eddie are forced to contend with both of these personalities when Roland forcibly abducts Odetta's body into their world, with Detta suppressing Odetta most of their travels. After Roland encounters the third door, Detta captures Eddie and uses him as bait for the lobstrosities, hoping to force Roland to come back and return her to her own world. Instead of revealing a new companion, the third door, labeled the Pusher, brings a new adversary to Roland, Jack Mort, a sociopath who takes sadistic pleasure in injuring and killing random strangers. And the man responsible for the head trauma that created Odetta Holmes' alternate personality, the loss of Detta Odetta's legs, and the death of Jake Chambers. Roland arrives in Jack's body just as he is about to push Jake into traffic, the event that leads to Jake's appearance in The Gunslinger, and stops him from doing so. Under Roland's control, Jack acquires medicine and ammunition that Roland needs to survive, then jumps in front of the same subway that hit Odetta slash Detta years earlier. Roland returns to his world just before impact, having made sure that Odetta slash Detta sees Jack's death in order to force the two personalities to confront each other. They merge into a third, stronger personality, Susanna Dean, and she stops the lobstrosities from trying to eat Eddie. As the group travels away from the beach, Eddie, having broken his drug addiction after a painful withdrawal, begins to fall in love with Susanna. Both owe their lives to Roland, but he's acutely aware that he may eventually need to sacrifice them to reach the tower. So my analysis. 
The novel, and specifically Prologue, The Sailor, uh, begins almost immediately following the events of The Gunslinger, which, keep in mind, had been published five years before. By 1987, King's four years old, and while The Gunslinger might have been published only five years before, like I said, it had really been begun 20 years before. And the only reason I mention this is because for a novel that details the various time periods through doorways which function as time travel devices of sorts, it's fitting to note that this novel is a doorway unto itself which transports both the reader and the writer to, like I said, a place created over 20 years before. Bravely, King decides to just get right into it. If you haven't read the previous installment, then you're going to be confused when King, in the first two sentences, introduces the gunslinger, the man in black, tarot cards, and a boy named Jake. Naturally, for readers who have read The Gunslinger, we're treated to the callbacks to the original story. And while it might have been finished years before, it really feels like no time has passed. By the time that the first novel had concluded, Roland had begun to embrace life, symbolized by his relationship with the boy mentioned here, the sailor in the tarot card, Jake. It's tragic on numerous levels when Roland rejects the symbolic qualities of life by sacrificing the very real boy in order to progress closer to the tower. What's interesting here is that the gunslinger began with forward motion. The man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. With the drawing of the three... King begins with a look to the past, with the boy functioning as the albatross to Roland's ancient mariner. Now, for a series which tips its hat to numerous literary works, it shouldn't come as a surprise to find connections to Coleridge's classic poem of a doomed traveler whose sin is paid with endless death of those around him, but not for him, and forced to relive these deaths through the constant retelling of his tragic story to those around him. That's the basis of not just The Dark Tower as a whole, but specifically this novel. The wedding guest is both the reader and his soon-to-be-formed quartet of Eddie and Susanna. And just think of the metatextual con uh, connotations of the basic gist of the ancient mariner, of his cursed, endless existence. Sound familiar? So it comes as no surprise when King writes on page 30 the very famous line, Water, water everywhere, and not a drop to drink. Regardless, all illusions aside, the fact that the novel begins with the sailor and therefore Jake illustrates the significance of the boy. The gunslinger's opening lines linked the gunslinger with the man in black and using the transitive property with the gunslinger to the tower. Later, when faced with the decision between the tower or the boy, Roland chose the tower. Here, at the opening of the second novel, King references the sacrifice of the tower, acknowledging that while he might have chosen the tower, Roland might have made the wrong choice. This is an action that has direct consequences on our character in this novel. Furthermore, I stated that the boy represented life and Roland chose the tower. Ka continues to smack Roland in the face with life. After all, the first novel was singular, the gunslinger. From a symmetrical standpoint, the first and seventh novels overlap each other through their titles, the gunslinger and the dark tower. This novel expands outward from the singular nature of the first novel the title itself suggesting life, and the possibility of redemption through life and community. The fact that the final novel is represented by a singular title that mirrors the opening novel that was marked by death and solitude should foreshadow the ultimate events that are yet to come. Another note on the title, uh, The Drawing of the Three is a gerund phrase, uh, which is a drastic departure from King's other titles, which tend to be either proper nouns, objects, titles, or events, whereas this is an action functioning as a noun. We've had titles of characters' names like Carrie, Misery, Firestarter, Cujo, Christine, The Gunslinger. We've had places, Salem's Lot, Pet Cemetery, and titles like The Dead Zone, The Eyes of the Dragon, The Stand, The Talisman. And these are either events or objects of importance. Um, but no matter what they are, they're all things. Whereas this is an action. Here, the syntax of the title of this novel breaks a previously established pattern of King's other works, which suggests a possibility of redemption for this character, as if through the drawing of the three itself, the gunslinger, the title character of the first book, can break free of the fate that he's rid himself into much like Stephen King, is breaking the pattern that he's established for himself with the way that he's titled his other books. Does he do that? Does he break himself free of his fate? Constant readers who have finished The Dark Tower know the answer to that question. If you haven't, I can't promise that I won't spoil the ending in this review, um, but I will try my best. 
Okay, so back to the book. With one page, King provides so much information. The setting, a beach. Our character, Roland, who sacrificed a boy who hates himself and who worries more about the well-being of his guns and ammo than himself. In fact, he doesn't fully react when he loses a part of his calf or his fingers, but when the lobstrosity goes after his gun, the gun is more important to him than his own health. It's a loaded opening, incredibly effective. We also get a sense of the value of the guns and their shells from the scarcity of them. Why else would he worry so much about them getting wet if it meant that they weren't easily resupplied? With this quick inference, King demonstrates that less is more and paints a vivid picture of the desolation and deterioration of this world. Of the series entries, two of the novel's openings tend to be discussed. The first, of course, is The Gunslinger, not as much because of the action, but because of the majesty and mythic quality of the opening line. The other one is The Wastelands, due to the fact that our newly formed quartet fight a giant rotting robo-bear. It is so insane that you can't help but talk about it. But this novel's opening isn't really talked about that much, and it's remarkable. There's more danger in these first few pages than in the entirety of the first book. And these carnivorous lobstrosities are more of a physical threat to Roland than the shape-shifting quasi-immortal wizard from The Gunslinger. Despite the alien landscape and bizarre surrealness to the scene, it's still one to which we can relate. I think that we've all fallen to a deep sleep. You know, that, that weighs the body down even after it awakes. The simple fact that Roland comes the closest that he's ever come to death from simple grogginess and disorientation is an incredible touch. He was so worn out, both physically and mentally, from the events of the first book that a single lobster could do more damage to him than the man in black ever could. In fact, the fact that the fingers of his hand are chewed allows for a physical deterioration that mirrors his spiritual deterioration. And when that's over, it moves on to the first section in full, The Prisoner. Chapter 1, The Door. Now, on page 31, King explicitly states our hero's dilemma. Very well. I am now a man with no food, with two less fingers, and one last toe than I was born with. I am a gunslinger, with shells which may not fire. I am sickening from a monster's bite and have no medicine. I have a day's water if I'm lucky. I may be able to walk perhaps a dozen miles if I press myself to the last extremity. I am, in short, a man on the edge of everything. When he's so close to death, Roland's most defined trait is what saves him, his obsessive single-mindedness. He sees something up ahead, and he has to figure out what it is. And of course, we know what it is. It's a door. And with it, King presents to us one of his most famous images from this series, the beach doorways. While magic doorways are nothing new in the world of fantasy, with these he makes them his own. The door certainly adds the surreal quality to the story. Each one just a door, without any walls to hold them upright. Doors, visible only on one side. It's not the last time we'll see magic doors, but it's the last time we'll see them function in this particular way where Roland's consciousness travels rather than his body, which will eventually travel at the conclusion of the novel. And the door's mere presence raises the question of who provided them in the first place? Are these taunting gifts from the man in black? Assistance from the being eventually referred to as Gone, the Force of the White? No matter. Simply put, the doors serve as extremely cool images in a series that boasts a number of cool images. And though he may be many years dead at this point, the Ghost of Court lives on through his teachings, cataloged lessons in Roland's meticulous mental Rolodex, from which he pulls the voice of Court explaining that not every man sees what he sees, and the difference between seeing and not seeing could be the difference of life and death. Of course, Roland thinks of this when he opens the beach doorway to discover the earth from miles above and realizes that he's been looking through a window. It's during this scene when Roland is peering through Eddie's eyes that we learn of a distinct and memorable aspect of Roland's world, and that's the lack of paper which is a, a really neat uh, little distinction to make in this uh, post-apocalyptic fantasy world. And though Eddie will be one of the series' touchstones, a relatable character from a recognizable world, he's introduced to Roland as Roland had been introduced to the reader, not as a character, but as an epic figure, the prisoner. 
Eddie Dean will come later, but for now, he's the prisoner. Chapter 2, Eddie Dean. As alien as Roland's world has been to us, our world is just as alien to him, and King clearly has fun establishing Roland as the fish out of water. When Eddie looks into the mirror and Roland sees that he's possessed by addiction, he decides to step through the doorway. Now, it's no coincidence, and I'm going to talk a lot about this later, but it's no coincidence that during this moment that King references Cuthbert, which establishes a connection between Eddie and Cuthbert, which sometimes is a simple mirroring of the two characters and other times is implied as a reincarnation of Roland's long-lost best friend. Taking that into account, it makes perfect sense that as soon as Roland sees Eddie, he unknowingly looks upon his new face of his best friend and dives through the doorway to help him. Later on page 52, King will write, This man reminded the gunslinger achingly of Cuthbert. The relationship between Roland and Eddie is one of mirroring. For Roland, Eddie is his Cuthbert. For Eddie, Roland is his Henry. Each character will serve as a redemption of the other. Cuthbert as Eddie can be saved by Roland for Roland. And as for Eddie, in Roland, he finds a big brother who will teach him without the abusive qualities of Henry. At this point, Henry is just too far gone for his own redemption, but Roland isn't. And with Roland, Eddie can redeem his brother after all. Now, I just mentioned mirroring, and I will go into, like I said, much more detail about the connections between these characters and the mirroring of these characters um, in its own special section when I've concluded the analysis of the, of the book itself. Now, immediately, uh, we learn that Eddie is not just a junkie, but a drug mule who's in the midst of a panic attack at the thought of having to walk through customs with two pounds of cocaine strapped to his body. While in the bathroom, he notices that the eyes that reflect back at him aren't his own. Eddie senses another mind in his own, and after throwing up, King provides one of his humus, um, sorry, humorous universal truths. And he says, Whatever you might say about it, regurgitation had at least this much in its favor. As long as you were doing it, you couldn't think of anything else. Now, this scene is important in establishing the rules for the body sharing, as well as establishing Eddie's character, which comes complete with a reservoir of strength despite its current drug-addled state of being. King foreshadows his future role as a gunslinger with the description of Eddie having deep steel. With Roland discovering that he can bring things through the doorway, King prevents the gunslinger from simply dragging Eddie through because his body needs medicine and Eddie's the only way he'll be able to acquire the necessary medicine for his healing of his fevered body which means that he has to assist Eddie through customs. Eddie, in more ways than one, becomes a passenger in this scene, as Roland experiments with what he can and cannot pass through the magic doorway and remains alert to the flight attendant, who despite all efforts to look conspicuous, is seen by Roland to be aware that something is off. This is a novel that doesn't waste any time, because in the space of a few short pages, Roland's mind connects with Eddie's, and Eddie steps through the door into Roland's world. So much of the relationship between the two characters is based on Eddie's fear of Roland, which he'll eventually overcome, but the fear itself is largely part um, to the first appearance that the gunslinger, uh, whose blood-poisoned body, looks to Eddie like a corpse. Eddie shows his resilience, his cunning, his inner strength when he stands up for himself to the customs agents after they're unable to find any drugs. Now, despite his current profession and his addiction, we see the elements of the gunslinger within. And we have chapter four, The Tower. One of the things uh, about this novel that I guess I never really noticed before was just how unrelenting it is. Whereas The Gunslinger was a descriptive story that moved along from set piece to set piece, this is just a nonstop thrill ride. It begins with Roland nearly dying at the hands of sea monsters to his discovery of the magic doors, to the will he or won't he make it through customs plane ride of Eddie Dean, and just when you think he's made it, having just outsmarted the DEA, we realize that his problems have only just begun. Yeah, he might have made it through customs, but now he has to deal with the Mafia. The novel that just never slows down, and its tensions only escalate with each turning page. Now, as I've stated before on multiple occasions, and not that this is you know, some new you know, concept or, or anything, but it's the job of the storyteller to show rather than tell. Now, King was effective in the first book, um in showing Roland's ruthlessness with the massacre of Tull, uh, the way in which he interacted with Sylvia Pitson, how he sacrificed Jake to get closer to the tower. Uh, still, you know, there's a lot more to say about the character, or rather more to show. 
And King makes the point to illustrate that so much of a gunslinger's training is in the preparedness of things, or rather how to be alert to the point where you're ready for almost anything. Um, you know, we see Roland's awareness on page uh, 97, and this is where the almost superhuman qualities of the gunslinger uh, start to manifest themselves. Actually, it starts on the bottom of page 96. Well, we still have to be damned careful, Eddie said. They've got two custom guys watching me, us, wherever the hell I am now. I know we have to be careful, Roland returned. There aren't two, there are five. Eddie suddenly felt one of the weirdest sensations of his entire life. He did not move his eyes, but felt them moved. Roland moved them. A guy in a muscle shirt talking into a telephone. A woman sitting on a bench, rooting through her purse. A young black guy who would have been spectacularly handsome except for the hair lip, which surgery had only partially repaired, looking at the t-shirts in the newsstand Eddie had come from not long since. There was nothing wrong about any of them on top, but Eddie recognized them for what they were nonetheless, and it was like seeing those hidden images in a child's puzzle, which once seen could never be unseen. He felt dull heat in his cheeks, because it had taken the other to point out what he should have seen at once. He had spotted only two. These threes were a little better, but not that much. The eyes of the phone man weren't blank, imagining the person he was talking to, but aware, actually looking, and the place where Eddie was. That was the place to which the phone man's eyes just happened to keep returning. The purse woman didn't find what she wanted or give up, but simply went on rooting endlessly, and the shopper had a chance to look at every shirt on the spindle rack at least a dozen times. All of a sudden, Eddie felt five again, afraid to cross the street without Henry to hold his hand. Never mind, Roland said, and don't worry about the food either. I've eaten bugs while they were still lively enough for some of them to go running down my throat. Uh, so, I mean, just his ability to see everything just shows a different side of what he is as a gunslinger. It's not just about the guns, it's about the mind. More so than anything else, it's about the mind. And he has an amazing mind and instinct. Now, I guess uh, now's a good time as any to talk about fan casting the eventual movie or television series. Now, as, as you probably know at this point, uh, Ron Howard has been trying to get this project off the ground for years. Um, and in the last few years, they, they've met with Aaron Paul, famously known as Jesse from Breaking Bad, for the role of Eddie. Um, and just during this reread, it's Aaron Paul that I keep picturing. And actually, with Breaking Bad in my mind, during the scene with Jack Andalini, I kept picturing Jonathan Banks, who played Mike Ehrmantraut as Jack. So it was just in my mental reread. It was just a uh, it was a nice Breaking Bad reunion. And then for a hell of it, I decided to throw uh, Brian Cranston in there as as Roland to to see what that was like. I mentioned earlier that the ghost of the man in black is a very strong character in this novel. Now he may not exist as a literal ghost, and later it's confirmed that he isn't really dead at all. Spoiler alert! But uh, rather his absence itself is a major presence, whether it's the voice in Roland's head or, as author Joe Sherry pointed out, in Henry's drugged response to Trivial Pursuit. I mean, just look at his responses here. No matter the question that's asked of him, his response is always Johnny Cash. And what is Johnny Cash known as? That's right, the man in black. It's during the scene in which we meet Balazar a man who operates out of the tower and stacks towers of cards, which reflect the very real instability of the cosmic dark tower that Roland pursues. There's real tension here, as Eddie is driven to the tower, knowing he'll be killed by Balazar. What Balazar doesn't know, however, is that in Eddie's mind, a true killer has hitched a ride, and the action movie fan inside all of us starts to twitch with anticipation and excitement. We know that things are about to come to a head, and it can't come soon enough. Which brings us to Chapter 5, Showdown and Shootout. This scene, guys, this scene, this is one awesome and cinematic scene. Now, a lot of critics out there are going to argue that the Dark Tower series is unfilmable. My counter-argument is to just read this scene and tell me it doesn't read like a movie. I can almost hear the music, the thudding tones... Maybe a John Carpenter-styled score. 
and the score starts to build as Eddie prepares to step into the bathroom. It grows a little bit more intense as Henry, as Henry dies. It builds uh, even heavier when Roland tells Eddie to let Jack into the bathroom. At this point, it's almost unbearable. King builds this scene as masterfully as Andalini's House of Cards. If this was filmed the right way, it'd be the breakout set piece for sure. When Eddie drags Jack into Roland's world, for all intents and purposes, King is dragging us into that world. The recognizable has been dragged against its will into the alien, and it's wonderful to behold. I'll never get sick of reading others experiencing Roland for the first time, and Jack is no exception. Roland's takedown of Andalini, his bullet striking the gun at the exact right time, and the subsequent explosion destroying Jack's hand and face is incredible, and there is such dark glee to the lobstrosities swarming over his still living body. And when Roland and Eddie return to the bathroom, when Eddie hears that Henry's dead, all hell breaks loose. Again, it's fantastic. Well-structured scene building to the moment when Eddie and Roland fire those guns together for the first time. King knows what's coming. It reminds us of what Roland is capable of, referencing Tall and the bloodlust that had possessed him, and shows us why Eddie will make for a good singer one day. He's naked, he's outnumbered, but all he can think of is, as he says, going to war. And in the end, uh, the tower, not the dark tower, but the this particular bar, um, is simply just a recreation of what we've seen um, in the first book uh, in Tull. So um, in the middle of page 151, King writes, Balazar's office was no longer recognizable as a room of any kind. Its previous function had ceased to matter. Eddie looked around with the wide, wondering eyes of a very young man seeing something like this for the first time. But Roland knew the look, and the look was always the same. Whether it was an open field of battle, where thousands had died by cannon, rifle, sword, and halberd, or a small room where five or six had shot each other, it was the same place, always the same place in the end. Another dead house, stinking of gunpowder and raw meat. The scene concludes with a choice, and with nothing left in this world, Eddie chooses to join Roland on his quest, which brings us to Shuffle. During the Shuffle, King presents Roland and Eddie as mirror images of each other, one suffering from withdrawals, the other from infection, and teases the coming of Detta Odetta when, real, when Roland realizes that he's being dragged along the beach in a contraption built by Eddie. And King doesn't waste any time establishing the relationship between Eddie and Roland. Despite his withdrawals, Eddie's a comedian, and when he has his comedic moments, Roland states, I don't understand you. Sure you do, Eddie says. You just don't have any sense of humor. As Eddie eulogizes his brother, Roland thinks of Court and Court's last trained 13 gunslingers, which ushered in the end of Gilead. Here we get a timeline to the events of the fall of Roland's civilization, um, on page 177. 13, he remembered, court saying on the day before the presentation ceremonies. This is an evil number. And on the following day, for the first time in 30 years, court had not been present at the ceremonies. His final crop of pupils had gone to his cottage to first kneel at his feet, presenting defenseless necks, then to rise and receive his congratulatory kiss and to allow him to load their guns for the first time. Nine weeks later, Court was dead. Of poison, some said, two years after his death, the final bloody civil war had begun. The Red Slaughter had reached the last bastion of civilization, light, and sanity, and had taken away what all of them had assumed was so strong with the casual ease of a wave taking a child's castle of sand. So he was the last, and perhaps he had survived because the dark romance in his nature was overset by his practicality and simplicity. He understood only three things mattered. Mortality, Ka, and the Tower. Now this, of course, is where first-time readers may have picked up on some continuity errors because in the previous books, Roland didn't know Court's fate. Here it's clear. This, along with little touches like the mention of a gunslinger friend named Desmond, who's never referenced again, and Alan's name, which is later changed to Elaine, and actually later in the book uh, is written as Elaine, so there's a, there's a discrepancy even within the book. It just shows how little control of this universe King has. 
Now, in my bonus episode of Eyes of the Dragon, I spoke about the, the flag contradictions throughout uh, these stories and discussed that at a thematic level, these contradictions and inconsistencies only serve to strengthen the fact that the character is the embodiment of chaos. Similarly, one could argue that any inconsistencies throughout these novels, uh, Court's fates, friends never spoken of, name changes, could be a result of the fracturing multiverse, the collapse of the beams, and the growing sickness of the tower itself. Now, on page 178, Roland introduces Eddie to the concept of Ka, which could be the first time we are introduced to Ka. I don't remember if it was introduced to the reader uh, in The Gunslinger or not, so unless I'm wrong, this is our first real exposure to the series' most important concept. And the section concludes with conflict between our two characters upon the discovery of door number two, which brings us to the Lady of Shadows. Chapter one, Detta and Odetta. Here we're introduced to our Lady of Shadows, the series' most beloved, and despite her wheelchair status, the strongest character of the Quartet, the fractured woman, or should I say women, who will later merge to form the fan-favorite Susanna. As I've mentioned before, race is clearly something that King has been working with for a while. With his novel It, he tackled it head-on, and he places us in 1964, where the civil rights movement and racial tensions are in full swing. Kennedy's assassination is immediately referenced, and he's referred to as the last gunslinger, suggesting that he's the last bastion of love and light in a world that's beginning to move on. Conversely, Kennedy was alluded to in The Gunslinger, except uh, it was in description of Farson, um, who is actively trying to bring about ruin rather than civilization. Now, this section of the novel is a lot trickier than Eddie's. Eddie's story took place in modern-day New York, and in 1980's Go, Go, Go world, a story of drugs and mafia wasn't hard to slip into. With The Lady of Shadows, it's a little different. First, it takes place over 20 years before, stars a character who suffers from dissociative identity disorder, which um, at the time was identified as schizophrenia, and tackles the very heavy subject of race. With Lady of Shadows, King slows it down. The Prisoner was a non-stop thrill ride that kept building and building and building, but this section is different. With it, he has to build the world 1963, and more importantly, establish the rules of Detta slash Odetta's condition. Unlike Eddie's story, which is one in which the characters must overcome external conflict, here the character is the conflict. And rather than an action-crime drama of drug running in the Mafia, Odetta and Detta's story is more of a mystery. Who are these women? Where does Odetta go when she disappears? How did she lose her legs? And if she's brought into Roland's world, how can she survive without legs? Already, we need to know more. We get a sense of the two characters with King's syntax. First, with Odetta, the sentences are neat, orderly, and abide by the proper rules of grammar. With Detta, specifically our first introduction to the idea of Detta, we have a three-page stream-of-consciousness run-on sentence. It speaks to the chaotic, frenzied nature of the character. More so than Eddie, there's a greater sense of destiny, or Ka, in the Lady of Shadows story. King points out twice that Roland would have understood aspects of her life. Once for Detta, the other for Odetta. Now, I'm going to spoil the events of Book 7, The Dark Tower, right now, so you might want to skip ahead by 30 seconds or so. Um, so, spoilers beware, spoilers beware, spoilers starting. I'm telling you, I'm going to start, I'm going to spoil the end of The Last Dark Tower book, so if you haven't read it, you want to move on and then come back in about 30 seconds, because I'm spoiling it right now. So, um, with the fact that Susanna is the only character of the Quartet to survive, it really speaks to her strength. Um, that based on the hardship of the life through which she was forced to endure, of all of them, she was the one most equipped to be a gunslinger. Hell, of all of them, she has the most determination, strength, and the clearest vision, and her most notable scene in the series doesn't even involve a pair of guns, but rather plates that are just as deadly in her hands, which just goes to show kind of just how badass this character is. So... Uh, I will definitely talk a lot more about the ending of this book when it's time to, but um, it's very fitting that she's the one to survive. 
So chapter one ends with a standoff between Roland and Eddie, in which Eddie references Cuthbert, who he says Roland mentions in his dreams. Now, again, this is a character who plays such a large role in the series, Cuthbert I'm talking about, even if he's barely in it. Every reference is the acknowledgement of the humanity that Roland has lost along the way. Chapter two, Ringing the Changes. If this were another King novel, Maybe he teased out the mystery more, but here he gets right down to it. In this chapter, we're given the horrific attack on Odetta that cost her her legs. And King is wise to place it through the eyes of another character. Had we experienced it through Odetta's perspective, the push itself might remind readers of Jake's push, which was told to us through Jake. The similarities might clue in the reader for what will later be a third act surprise reveal that connects the first books together with a thread of intertwined destiny. Rather, King places us with another character, so we focus on what he focuses on. So rather than the push, which only takes up one line and a later reference by the lady that jumped down to help Odetta, the reader experiences the horror and chaos that comes after the push. The scene is so powerful and devastating that we almost forget that she's been pushed at all. All there is is the train and her legs and the horror of the act itself. The catalyst is de-emphasized. With Jake's story, it was all about the pusher. While Jake's death is described in agonizing detail, the fact that he had been pushed is never ignored. In fact, the dying image of our world that Jake sees um, is the pusher himself dressed as a priest. While I've pointed out in the past that King oftentimes writes his black characters with exaggerated dialect, he acknowledges that here with Detta, and as another character pointed out, as he thinks that she sounded like Butterfly McQueen gone Looney Tunes. As I'll state later, it's as if Detta is the more visceral response to the civil rights movement. Odetta fights for change through peaceful protests and her hope that the better qualities of mankind will lead to enlightenment, whereas Detta is a violent reaction, the personification of every negative stereotype and caricature, a weapon to rub in the face of all the honky mofos, as if to say, is this what you see? Well then, this is what you're going to get. And on page 225, King captures Odetta's personality in a nutshell. After George, the paramedic, uh, thought he could fall in love with her and believed her to have the same qualities of a queen, King gives us Roland's perspective when he wheels her through the door. Not long after Roland would think, any other woman, crippled or otherwise, suddenly shoved all the way down the aisle of the mart in which she was doing business, monkey business you may call it if you like, by a stranger inside her head, shoved into a little room while some man behind her yelled for her to stop, then suddenly turned, shoved again, where there was by rights no room in which to shove, and finding herself suddenly in an entirely different world, I think any other woman under those circumstances would have most certainly have asked, where am I? before all else. Instead, Odetta Holmes asked almost pleasantly, What exactly are you planning to do with that knife, young man? The prisoner section built up to the moment when Eddie stepped into Roland's world. There's not as much of a build-up for the Lady of Shadows. Rather, it's about the adjustment to this world and the realization that the already broken mind has now shattered. With Eddie's section, Roland spent enough time in Eddie's head to believe in the existence of magic doors and alien worlds. Odetta, however, doesn't have that benefit, and it's up to Eddie, not Roland, to fully draw her into this world. It's through the power of conversation and connection and trust, and it's because of this that their eventual quartet grows as strong as it does. And it's here that we learn that Detta, the maniacal other half of the coin, is the real threat of this story. More dangerous than the Lobstrosities, Jack Mort or the man in black himself. Chapter 4, Detta on the other side. We see how vicious and dangerous Detta is when she attempts to kill Eddie. We also see how wise Roland is in knowing how to teach Eddie a lesson, which is painful, but one that makes him a better gunslinger in the long run. Detta might be tied to a chair, but we see just how dangerous she can be. Even tied down, she exhausts Eddie and Roland both physically and emotionally. It's fascinating to read knowing that really all that's occurring is two men wheeling a woman down a beach. And it's funny. Say what you will about Detta, but her nonstop tirade of insults is pretty funny in a cumulative way. Reshuffle. Eddie is the linchpin of this section, as he has to leave Roland, wheel Odetta to the door, 
leave her after falling in love with her, and return to Roland with the wheelchair. When they reach the door, Roland expects the word death, but instead is greeted by the pusher, which as we've seen um, soon enough, is the same thing. When Roland steps through the door, he leaves behind Eddie, who is left alone on a beach with a hiding Detta walker who is watching from afar. The Pusher, Chapter 1, Bitter Medicine. And here it comes full circle with the awful words. He was too intent on the boy. He had been watching the boy for the last two weeks. Today, he was going to push him. Readers should immediately think of the other boy we know who'd been pushed, and the novel's greatest conflict arises within the story. Given the opportunity, do you push the boy knowing that the push leads you closer to this moment, or do you save the boy, causing a time travel paradox? The inclusion of Jack Mort ends the speculation that Jake's pusher had been a world-hopping man in black. By the end of that novel, it was strongly hinted at, but never confirmed, which works to this book's favor, and it doesn't manifest as a contradiction, but rather as a misdirection on Stephen King's part. And we discover that it was Mort who dropped the brick on Odetta's head, causing the deep split between Odetta and Detta. Furthermore, here it's confirmed, though the astute reader has probably figured it out by now, that he's also the one responsible for the assault which had cost Odetta her legs. His actions are spurned on by thoughts of a greater destiny, as described on page 322. He could still hear the woman, the mother of the little girl, he supposed, screaming. But that sound was coming from the front of the building. It was faint and unimportant. All of the things which happened after, the cries, the confusion, the wails of the wounded, if the wounded were still capable of wailing, were not things which mattered to Jack. What mattered was the thing which pushed change into the ordinary course of things and sculpted new lines in the flow of lives. And perhaps the destinies not only of those struck, but of a widening circle around them, like ripples from a stone tossed into a still pond. Who was to say that he had not sculpted the cosmos today, or might not at some future time? Chapter 2, The Honey Pot. Here we get the scene in which Detta gets the jump on Eddie. It's tense and filled with danger. By the time Eddie is hogtied and left by the shore, we know what to expect. King has done a masterful job at illustrating the threat of the lobstrosities. Chapter 3, Roland takes his medicine. In this section, we see Roly fully as a fish out of water as he takes full control of Nort's body and navigates the city through humorous and chilling encounters, finding an ammo store with the hopes that he'll be able to procure more ammo for his revolvers. It's a great scene because King has told us that Roland is a great improviser, and here he shows us how he's a great improviser, and we get a moment with the cops who capture the experience of talking to this strange man in the blue suit who reminds them of a machine and the Terminator. King keeps track of the characters' destinies together with a reference of Balazar and Ginelli, which is just a fun little cosmic shout-out. Watching Roland play the cops against Fat Johnny is fun, and when the tensions begin to escalate, Roland flips the sign from open to close, and you know it's about to be good. Quick, uh, Roland quickly takes charge of the situation, and soon after finds himself in a pharmacy, where King writes of our magicless world on page 362 to 363. For a moment, the gunslinger merely stood inside the door, first amazed, then ironically amused. Here he was in a world which struck him dumb, with fresh wonders seemingly at every step, a world where carriages flew through the air and paper seemed as cheap as sand. And the newest wonder was simply that for these people, wonder had run out. Here, in a place of miracles, he saw only dull faces and plodding bodies. There were thousands of bottles, there were potions, there were filters, but the Mort, I'm sorry, Mort Psychpedia identified most as quack remedies. Here was a salve that was supposed to restore fallen hair, but would not. Here was a cream which promised to erase unsightly spots on the hands and arms, but lied. Here were cures for things that needed no curing, things to make your bowels run or stop them, to make your teeth white and your hair black, things to make your breath smell better, as if you could not do that by chewing on alder bark. No magic here, only trivialities. Although there was Aston and a few other remedies which sounded as if they might be useful. But for the most part, Roland was appalled by this place. In a place that promised alchemy but dealt more in perfume than potion, 
Was it any wonder that wonder had run out? Which brings us to chapter 4, The Drawing. By this point, Mort is conscious and feels the wrath of Roland, who commands him to take them to the subway station where he'd pushed Odetta. A side note, I believe there's a discrepancy in the timeline here. Uh, King states that the attack which had cost Odetta her legs had occurred three years before. Odetta is taken from her world in 1964, which means that by this account, it's 1961. However, we know that this scene isn't taking place in the 1960s, but rather the 1970s, 1977, I believe, which is when Jake had died. So I just, it's just a, a brief little continuity error that I, that I found. Roland and Jack um, should die in this scene. The cop's bullet should do the job, but they're saved by Jack's lighter, right? Now, is this just coincidence or was this intervention of the white? Regardless, the end comes quickly. Roland throws the flaming body of Jack Mort into the path of the same oncoming train that Mort had pushed Odetta. Before he dies, Roland commands the Lady of the Shadows to look and then jumps through the door. The process rips the two halves apart, pulls them into awareness, and causes them to reconcile into a whole. Roland immediately attempts to help Eddie from the Lobstrosities, but falls prey to them as well, and both are saved by the sudden appearance of the newly formed Susanna Dean. Final Shuffle. Now that their quartet is forming, the world rewards them with a new location as they head into the forest, which we'll see a lot more of in the next book. Just as Jake had done in the first book here, the presence of the growing quartet leads to life within the land. And on page 398, Eddie tells Roland that he's saved his soul and asks who will come through the next door and save Roland. And we'll find out soon enough in the next book. And the novel concludes bittersweetly with a newly formed family that knows its patriarch will sacrifice them to progress to the tower. Regardless, I find this to be an incredibly redemptive and hopeful ending. Despite the fact that he sacrificed Jake in the previous book, he was awarded with a new quartet to make up for the one that he'd lost a lifetime ago. He is no longer the last gunslinger, and with the final passage, He's filled with hope. It's beautifully written, and despite its hope, or perhaps because of it, fills me with great sadness. And that comes on the final page of the novel on page 399. Eventually, Eddie slept beside Susanna, the third Roland had drawn to make a new three, but Roland sat awake and listened to voices in the night while the wind dried the tears on his cheeks. Damnation? Salvation? The Tower. He would come to the Dark Tower, and there he would sing their names. There he would sing their names. There he would sing their names. The sun stained the east a dusky rose, and at last Roland, no longer the last gunslinger, but one of the last three, slept and dreamed his angry dreams through which there ran only that one soothing blue thread. There I will sing all their names. Um, and just a little note on that. Uh, the, the repetition, I think, is, is very, very effective. You know, he repeats, there he will sing all their names, is repeated three times, one for each of the drawing. And then with the final... Um, with the final one, um, the, the the fourth, there I will sing all their names. It's 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 turning back onto himself. So it's just within the words themselves. It is the the, the formation of the quartet. All right, everyone. This brings us to our Stephen King isms. So Stephen King isms. Uh, the first of which. So actually, I, I'm going to back up. I do this every single time, and I. <laughs> So I always feel bad. I just start to launch right into it. Then I then I remember that for those who might be tuning into the first time, I, I kind of need to explain what Stephen Kingism is. So a Stephen Kingism, uh, if this is your first time, uh, are the tricks and traits and tropes, just the patterns that you'll see from one Stephen King story to the next. Um, so I caught about seven of them, and the first of which is clearly the addict. 
Okay, I mean, we have seen the addict character before in uh, The Shining, in Salem's Lot, in Misery, and, you know, we, we see the addict, and here we'll see the addict again in The Tommyknockers. It, this is clearly Stephen King. Um, you know, I mean, you, you always that you always hear, you know, that writers write what they know, and Stephen King knows addiction, so he's pouring a lot of this into uh, the novel. Number two is the description of creatures with stalk eyes. Now, we have seen this before in The Talisman and The Mist, and here the lobstrosities are monstrous crustacean with eyes on stalks. It's definitely a trait that King rightfully views as alien. Now, just the simple inclusion of eyes sticking off of these like stalks off the, the heads of, of the creatures really goes a long way in establishing the monsters. Now we have references. Um, when Roland's in Eddie's head on the plane, he thinks of stories involving uh, the Grand Featherex from the land of Garland, which is a land that was first referenced in Eyes of the Dragon. Eddie, he goes on to reference The Shining as a movie, which means that he does not exist in the same world as Jack or Danny Torrance, and therefore does not exist in the same world as Annie Wilkes from Misery either, because in uh, Misery, Annie Wilkes references the events of The Shining as something that had occurred within her world. Then we have number 19. When Roland possesses Nort's body and holds up the pharmacy, the police dispatch calls a Code 19. And for Dark Tower aficionados, I'm sure that you know the importance of 19. Then we have the catchphrase. Uh, Stephen King loves his catchphrases, um, and we see it here with Jack um, Mort's doobies as opposed to don't bees. <laughs> and then we have it ends on fire. Okay, uh, specifically Jack Mort is on fire. If you're reading a Stephen King book and something is burning, chances are it's the end of the story. Um, we have trains. Trains play a large part in Stephen King works. Uh, we saw the train in The Talisman. We see trains um, function here, and we'll see most famously the train on display in the next Dark Tower book, The Wastelands. And lastly, we have two personalities fighting over the same body. Um, here we see Odetta and Detta. Uh, but later on, we will see, in the dark half, we will see two souls uh, fighting over the, the, the physicality of one particular body um, in the dark half. So we'll see that again. Okay, everyone, I'm uh, cutting it a little shorter than, than typical when it comes to the, um, the, the big ones for me, right? Uh, so I am going to be recording another episode uh, where I explore the the deeper connections of the Gunslinger, I'm sorry, the, the Drawing of the Three to the rest of the Dark Tower novels, uh, the, the bulk of which I'll be talking about Twinners and the doubling that, that we see. So make sure that you stay tuned for that. Uh, so everyone, um, thanks for listening, and if you have read the, uh, the, the rest of the Dark Tower series, feel free to check out this this other episode um, because I'll be getting into stuff that I really couldn't talk about here because I'm always conscientious of spoilers and I hope that I didn't spoil anything for anyone that has not finished the Dark Tower series. So if you have finished the Dark Tower series, head on over to the, the other episode. And if you have not finished the Dark Tower series, do not listen to that other episode because I don't want to ruin anything for you as I get into some very heavy, very, very specific um, topics that occur at the end of the Dark Tower itself. And um, everyone, if you haven't done so already, feel free to uh, like the uh, page on Facebook and follow me on Twitter and uh, Instagram. And the most important one would be to subscribe and write a, re a review on iTunes because the more um, interactions on iTunes... Uh, it, it, it just bumps it up on, on the search engine and it, it, it ranks it higher in the, the podcast library. So that would be doing me a huge solid. And I will see everyone here next week. Same King Time, same King Channel, Stephen King cast. All the troubles till the north, lock the front door.